Uh, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I know I've been away uh, a few weeks, um, but it is, it's good to be back. I certainly want to thank those who uh, preached in my absence. So thank you to Andrew Perrin and to Sue Armstrong and Stan Johnson and Ilya Marakovich. Um, it's, uh, but it's good to be back today. And uh, today we get to look at the very uh, last chapter in the book of Jonah. So this is our fourth week. It's conveniently uh, um, split up into four chapters, so it works out great. And so today we want to end our look at the book of Jonah. And so I invite you to hear these words from Jonah 4. He says, but this, and by this what he means is the salvation or the rescue of the Ninevites from God's wrath. This was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left And also many animals. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather on this day, and though the weather may seem the same, we also know that with schools beginning, a change of seasons is afoot. And so we pray that you would be with us now. We understand that many things have changed since the time of Jonah, and yet at the same time, it seems many things have stayed the same. And so we pray that you would speak to us through this old story, that you would help to make it new, that we might see within its pages our own lives. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So a few weeks ago, when one of our elders, Andrew Perrin, preached, he uh, besmirched my name. 
and suggested that I uh, always leave guest preachers with scripture passages that are dry, dusty, and difficult. I was, as you can imagine, quite annoyed by the fact that someone finally figured out what it was that I was doing. Uh, And it is true, perhaps, that that happens. I don't know, Scott, what you would say if you would agree with that. No? Good. Okay. And... um, I bring that up this morning, not because I think that our scripture passage today is dry or dusty, but because I do kind of feel a bit like a guest preacher, not because, just because I haven't been here for a little bit or preaching at least, but because of the fact that it is kind of weird just to be dropped in uh, on this Jonah at the very end. And so I've, I have listened to what Sue uh, Armstrong and Stan and Elia preached. I am uh, very appreciative of the ways in which they illuminated Jonah. Um, and so, but it does feel a little weird to just all of a sudden pop in for the very ending. The other thing I want to say is that I really kind of have been sad to miss out on Jonah because Jonah is really one of my favorite prophets as he's many people's favorite prophet. He's a very uh, unsuspecting prophet. This is not who you would have predicted to be a prophet. In fact, someone uh, suggested that it seems that perhaps God must have skipped over the vetting uh, prophet process altogether when it comes to Jonah. Because by and large, he is very different. This is not a man of great courage, it seems, of boldness. Instead, this is somebody who as soon as he hears what God wants him to do, he goes, as you may recall, in the exact opposite direction. It's a man, right, who flees away. He does not want to go to Nineveh at all. He finds himself, he goes into a boat. I mean, just running away on land was not far enough. He pushed away. And and you recall that in the middle of a storm, a storm that was there because of Jonah's disobedience, in the very middle of that storm, while everyone else was so concerned, what was Jonah doing in the hold of the boat? He was snoozing away. No troubles at all, right? And then all of a sudden, of course, they finally, he's like, all right, just throw me over. And they do. And finally then Jonah prays. But this is not really all that noble. I know atheists who would pray if they were stuck in the river, right? Or in the water. I mean, I mean, man, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'll pray for my rescue. I'll pray for my deliverance. And this is, of course, exactly what Jonah does. I love what Frederick Beekner uh, says about this part of Jonah's life. He says this right here. Within a few minutes of swallowing the prophet Jonah, the whale suffered a severe t- attack of acid indigestion. And it's not hard to see why. Jonah had a disposition that was enough to curdle milk. This is Jonah. And so finally then, of course, the, the, the fish or the whale, however, whatever you want to say, it, it, it threw Jonah up. But even then, if you had been Jonah after you had been thrown up and you had known the whole reason why and you'd known that the Lord had delivered you, you would have just walked straight to Nineveh, many of us. But he doesn't because the Lord has to come to him again, we're told, for a second time to say, get up and go deliver this message. But Jonah's heart is still not in it. You see this, right? Because what does he say to the Ninevites? What does he say? Just 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No mention of any hope. Just you're all going to die in 40 days. And one wonders if he even really yelled it or if he was just kind of like 40 days. You're going to be overthrown. It's kind of like, you know, we do that sometimes. Like when you're a kid and your parent tells you to do something and you do it, you know, go hug, you know, your sister or your brother, you know, and you're like, 
you did it just to kind of check it off and then you go on because it seems pretty clear that this is not really what he wants. And of course it's not. He doesn't want them to change their ways. All of a sudden then he goes back out and then he gets all upset. Oh, I know. Wait, I wanted to say one other thing, which is this, because I really like this point. Someone else made it, which is that, that if you're another one of the prophets in the Old Testament, how annoyed are you by Jonah? Right? Think about this for a moment. These other prophets, I mean, they are always, you know, okay, fine, I'll do what you want. And they're eloquent and they give people the whole message. And usually what happens when they have done that, these prophets, they're usually, you know, people try to kill them. They have to run away. And here's Jonah, who's already been running away, not from people, but from God. And he just kind of shows up and he's just like, all right, 40 days. And everyone changes their ways. Wouldn't you be annoyed? If you were one of those other prophets, I mean, I I think it's a little bit like, hypothetically speaking, if you had trained for a marathon for days, weeks, months, and years, and you trained, and you trained, and you finally, you you worked hard, and you got there, and then somebody on the day of the marathon, they just woke up and was like, hey, I think I'm just going to run a marathon today. And sure enough, you're running it. This is all hypothetical. And about mile 20, they they, they, they come by. You're you're hallucinating, right? You're thinking, I'm going to die. This is miserable. And that person who's like, Jerry, you don't look so good. And then just keeps going. Hypothetically speaking, you would hate that person. And I feel like this is kind of a bit like Jonah, right? That if you're one of the other prophets and you had worked hard all along and you saw very few results and Jonah did, I'm here to tell you that in the prophet hall of fame that has every picture of the prophets, Jonah's has more graffiti on it than anyone else. No question about it. But somehow it still just works out for him. And he's upset about it. Right? I mean, this is, again, almost comedic with the fact that he looks at this plant that, you know, just kind of rose up. And then he's like all sad. He's like, oh, this thing was rescuing me from the heat. And he cannot see the fact that 120,000 people are now going to live because God has worked through him. And all that he can think about is how hot he is. What a brat. But I love Jonah. Because here's the thing. We see this throughout Scripture We talk about it a lot. If God can use someone like Jonah, then God can use someone like me and like you. Right? If God can use somebody who is always making mistakes, who is all clearly imperfect, who is running away from God, who is disobeying God, who is pouting because of the fact that he's so hot and can't see the incredible thing that 120,000 people are going to be saved because he did a cruddy job of telling people that the city was going to be destroyed If God can use somebody like that, then surely God can use somebody like us. I mean, one of the things that we know, right, most of us at least, is that we are not perfect. 
I mean, I take great joy in the fact that here's the thing. I want you to know this, that if the Bible was only full of people who always made the right decisions, who always have perfect families, right, who were never running away from God, who never doubted God, who never feared God, I could never preach a sermon because of the fact that I would never understand the people within its pages. One of the beautiful things about scripture is that not only is it a window through which we can look and see the coming kingdom to which we are called to build that one day might be, but it is also a mirror that more often than not reflects us. That God longs to use you and me. And when we see people like Jonah, it is an invitation for us to join in that story. One of the quotes that I've used before, I like to use it as often as I can from Karl Barth, says this, says that when we share our virtues, we make competitors. When we share our sins, we become brothers. When all you're posting, you know this, on Instagram and Facebook is how perfect everything is and how wonderful your life is and how everything is majestic. All you've done is annoy however many Facebook friends you have. But when we are willing to be honest with one another about our own imperfections, then we are inviting people to become brothers and sisters with us in this faith journey. And this story invites us to be a part of the amazing faith journey that God takes us on. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that we're just supposed to sit around and talk about all of our flaws or imperfections. I've seen, as I'm sure you have, almost competitions between people who say, oh, you think you've sinned. You should see mine. Or you think your family's dysfunctional. Let me tell you about mine, right? We've all seen, you know, uh, competitions like this. I don't think that that's what we're supposed to be doing either. It's not some kind of race to see who's more messed up, right? I would win anyway. So, Here is the thing, though. What it should do is draw us to God. One of the beautiful parts of this story is this incredible image it gives to us of a God who is absolutely relentless in his love for us. It is a God who will not stop chasing after us, even if we don't want God to be near us at all. Because this is a God who did not give up on Jonah. No matter that he bought a ticket to go to the other place. No matter that he went out to the sea. No matter that he was thrown over. No matter that his prayer was really just for his own salvation. No matter that he got out, he was thrown up and didn't actually go to Nineveh immediately. No matter that he went and he did a really cruddy job of actually displaying the message. No matter that he, then he went out and still was hoping that they would all be killed. No matter all of those things, God kept coming after him. He was relentless in his love of Jonah, which is a reminder that he is relentless in his love of us. And he will keep chasing after us. And for those who are self-aware enough to both know their imperfections, then we can be drawn to this reality of the beauty of a God who is going to keep coming after us us. All that said, you have to admit that even though we do understand in many ways the imperfections of Jonah, it is a little bit hard to understand just how angry he is that 120,000 people are going to be rescued. 
it's a little hard to kind of understand, well, wait, why is he so upset that other people are going to be saved, that they're not going to die? One of the reasons, of course, is simply because of the fact that it is difficult for us to understand. Most of us don't know Assyrians. I think Elia brought this up last week about the reality that, that, that it's hard for us perhaps to emotionally connect with a people that we don't really know. So in one sense, you know, we don't have that connection. As Stan pointed out as well, though, the Assyrians tended to be known for how brutal they were, how, how terroristic they were, how, how, how they had developed these torture techniques. Uh, Stan even said um, that they are the ones who developed the, the practice of crucifixion. Now, I didn't check. I have no idea. He could be totally wrong on that. But, I'm just kidding, Stan. But, Stan is never wrong. However, there is this sense then of the brutality of these people. And if you begin to think about it like that, in some ways, you can begin to see perhaps that the reason why Jonah is upset is because what Jonah wants is justice. He wants justice, and that perhaps makes a bit more sense. Well, we all want justice. When you hear about tragedies, as we saw uh, this past weekend with shootings, as we see other things, as we see terrorists, whatever it may be, we all want a sense of justice. Micah 6.8 says to do, you know, they didn't get this at nine either, to do justice. Right? To do justice. That's a good biblical thing. We talk about it in here to do justice. So in that sense, it makes all the sense in the world that Jonah would be upset. He wants these people who will one day, mind you, almost annihilate the Israelites, his people in his country. He wants justice. And that is good and right. But at the same time, what Jonah also seems to have forgotten is that while Micah 6.8 says to do justice it also says to love mercy. And you see, it seems that Jonah wants absolutely nothing to do when it comes to the Ninevites with mercy whatsoever. Again, let's go back to the chapter last week. Remember this. What does he say as he goes out there to the Ninevites? He just gives those 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, do you remember what the king does and what the king says? The king, he says, okay, we've got to confess. He's got sackcloth everywhere. We've got, you know, ashes everywhere. We've got confession. We've got fasting. Not only the people couldn't fast, but none of the animals. I mean, all the had to fast. All the animals had to fast. You have all of this, right? All of this. And what does the king then say? The king then says this, says, For who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. The king says, Who knows what this God may do? Who knows? Guess who knows? Jonah knows, and he's not telling them. 
In the second chapter, what does he say? This beautiful prayer, this beautiful homage, Stan preached on it, where he says, oh, you are my rescuer. You are the deliverer, right? That you you can bring peace and wholeness even to those who have gone astray. And then in the fourth chapter that I just read, what does he say? He says, oh, I knew it. I knew that you would be gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. I knew that you would do all those things. I knew that that you would turn back, that you would relent from punishing. And the king says, who knows? And there is Jonah saying absolutely nothing because he does not want them to be rescued. You see, here's the thing when it comes to our enemies. By and large, this is what I have discovered, which is that when it comes to our enemies, to those that we do not like, to those that we do not agree with, to those who have done us wrong, we believe strongly in justice. And when it comes to us, we deserve mercy and grace. When it comes to others, justice. Those who have done us wrong, justice now, justice forever. And when it comes to ourselves, we think the Lord should lead with mercy and grace and compassion and love. Yes, do justice, no question. But the Lord, at least, seems to lead with mercy and with compassion. See, I think this is really important for us because the reality is that all of us, all of us have somebody who's done us wrong. All of us have someone, maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse, maybe it's a, maybe it's a boss or, or a teacher or maybe a friend or a parent or a child. All of us have somebody who has done us wrong for some reason and most of us in those situations, we tend to be less about mercy and compassion towards them and much more about justice. Or, and I'm picking this date right now in August of 2019 with great intentionality because what's going to happen in the future, let's just say November 2020, there is going to be something called an election. And if you remember the last election, not everybody was treating one another with great love and grace and mercy. And one of the things it seems to me that we as the church need to do is to begin to say and ask, how might we serve as a witness to what it looks like to actually disagree with one another? And how might we do that with love and patience? And I am here to tell you this, make no mistake about it. You will not wake up one day and all of a sudden think, I just want to love those who disagree with me. I see that bumper sticker. (laughs) I still love you. No. Few of us do that. The reality is if you want to become someone who is going to do as Jesus said to love your enemy, if you want to be someone who is not going to look like Jonah in these moments, you have to begin to cultivate love. And I want you to know that that is also the truth, make no mistake, with our own political enemies. Because there's a great chance that the person you're sitting next to is your political enemy. Even if you're married to them. I'm amazed at how often sometimes Megan's not quite getting it right. (laughs) And she's not probably not amazed at how frequently I'm getting it wrong. 
But what might we begin to do in August of 2019 to cultivate our souls into a people who are able to genuinely continue to love and have grace and mercy even with those we disagree with, even with our enemies or those who have done us wrong. One of the things it seems to me that we can do that we see Jonah not doing is to remember our own brokenness, our own pain, our own weaknesses, and how often God has had grace and mercy on our souls. I mean, remember again how often, it's a great image of Jonah just again and again and again, messing things up, disobeying, being fearful, being doubtful, all of those things, disobeying, and yet again and again and again, God forgiving him. Again and again and again, God loving him, having mercy and grace towards him. You see, it seems to me that if we can be a people who begin to acknowledge this reality that we are imperfect and that God and others have had grace on us, that that will begin to spill itself out. There are few places, we talk about this, there are few places in our society where you come and openly acknowledge your sinfulness and your brokenness. It's something that we will do here in just a few minutes when we take of the Lord's Supper. It's something that we talk about. We are very, we need to be open and honest. We don't always get things right. We do not know it all. And when you begin to acknowledge that, it begins to pour out into how you understand those around you. I have talked before probably about the person uh, in my first church where I served who, uh, who I just struggled with immensely. He was a nightmare in my life, as was his wife. Um, and I mean, I can't, I'm not even going to go into the things that he did, but I will just say this, that simply that I, I questioned again frequently, because it happened starting like three months into my first call, that I, that I began to question my own calling, all the work that I had done to get to this place, because I thought, well, man, I, I clearly, maybe I'm not a pastor, maybe, maybe I'm horrible, and, 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 and I mean, the things that he would say, the things that he would write in the emails, I mean, it was, it was really horrid. I mean, it shaped my soul. I still feel that. And then he got really sick and he went to the hospital and they called me up and they said, hey, he, he, needs, he needs you to come. And I thought, no. I mean, but I had no hospital team. There was no Scott Shelton in my life. If I had known Scott, I would have totally called it all expense trip to Chicago. Come up here and come be with this person. But I had to go, and I knew before I went, I knew that I was going to have to go. I was going to have to see him. I was probably, because this is what I tend to do, I was going to have to hold his hand and pray for him. I had prayed against him a lot, but I had never really prayed for him. And I knew that what I was going to want to do is take his hand and just crush it. Can I just be honest? I have never felt that way for any of you all that I have prayed. <laughs> just one of you. No, just kidding. And one of the ways that I kind of had to prepare myself during that 15-minute trip from the church to the hospital was to try and remember not the things that he had done to me, not even about him at all, but to remember how often God and others had shown me mercy and grace. 
so that when I got there, it wasn't easy. But when I got there, I at least was able to, in some way, try to be for him and to be with him. Even the one who was my enemy. Now, I have to say, the other thing that really helped with that was this reminder to me of the fact that he was also a creation of God. One of the things that God does as he's talking to Jonah, as he's asking Jonah a question, he basically says, should I not care for the 120,000 Ninevites or people? Literally what it says is, should I not care for the 120,000 Adams? Which of course is our word Adam, right? A-D-A-M. What Jonah or God was doing was reminding Jonah of the fact that these were 120,000 people that he had created. 120,000 people that he had loved. Do you remember in this scripture passage what it says? You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. When he looks at those Adams, the 120,000 Adams and Eves that were there, what he remembers is the fact that he was the one who helped to create them. He was the one who loved them, even if they didn't love him. He was the one that nurtured them. They were his creation. The psalmist says, we are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And guess what that means? It means you are wonderfully and fearfully made, and it means your enemy has been fearfully and wonderfully made. See, one of the greatest, simplest things that we do when it comes to our enemies, and you know this already, is you dehumanize them. Right? This is why, as we talk about why Twitter is so powerful, why social media is so powerful, why emails are so powerful, because you can just go off on somebody and you see no face. You do not see them. It is like they are not real and they are not in your mind real. And when someone is not real and is not a creation of God, you can go off on them. Whether it's somebody you know, whether it's a politician, it does not matter. When you detach them from being a creation of God, you can easily hate them. One of the things that was most helpful to me, and I, I realize this is strange, but when I went into that hospital room, I saw this man, and he was there in a hospital gown, in this bed, with nurses running around, with things coming in and out of his arms, with the incessant beeping, and the thing that I saw was a vulnerable creation of God. And one of the things that I had begun to do then is that when there's somebody that I really don't like or is an enemy in some way, is I picture that person in a hospital gown, facing me, but in a hospital gown nonetheless. Because when I do so, I am reminded of the fact that this is a vulnerable creation of God, someone who God loves and who I am called to love, even if, even if I do not agree with that person. Again, it does not mean that this person did everything right, that there shouldn't be some sense of justice, but it does mean that it helped me to begin to lead more by mercy and grace. Now there's one last thing that I want to bring up, which is this. In this question that God asks to Jonah, I hope you heard, one commentator said, this is actually an incredibly comedic question that he asks 
Jonah. Maybe you heard it. He said, he said basically, hey, you know what? Should I not have pity on these 120,000 people? And really kind of what's going on here is he's saying to Jonah, hey, look, Jonah, I know, I know. I'm God. I get it. I know. I created you. Yes. I created these 120,000 people. I created the storm. I, I created the fish. I, I, I created this, uh, this, this little plant that came up, and then I created the worm that killed it. I realized I killed or I created all these things. I know I'm God, but I want to make sure, is it okay with you if I spare 120,000 people? Do you hear the sarcasm in the question? It's not surprising that Jonah doesn't give an answer, right? I, we oftentimes are, 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 are mixing up our identities, right? I mean, I, I see this with my own children. I love my children, but I see this at times. Uh, and again, I think the children by and large are just adults, but adults have gotten better at hiding things, which is that, which is that, which is that with some frequency, right? They, well, they forget and they love to dispense of justice to their sisters, and, 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 and so one of the things, I didn't even realize this, we ask them questions, and here's the question. I'm sorry, are you the sister or are you the parent? The sister or the parent? You see, we all love being the parent and being able to kind of judge. We all love putting ourselves in that position. In fact, Philip Carey has this great comment, I think, about Jonah. Here's what he says. He says, sorry, uh, where are we? There we go. It's coming. Wait for it. And... I'll just read it. There we go. We self-righteously identify ourselves as the afflicted and the victimized, taking pity on ourselves and not on others, so that in our imagination, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies, an instrument for our own vengefulness, rather than the judge of the whole earth. Jonah thought, I know exactly what the Lord wants, and I will dispense of that justice. And here's what I want you to know. As soon as you forget that you are not God, then trouble is on the horizon. My encouragement for us is to continue to remember this because when you begin to understand that you are not God, it's not that you don't work for justice, but when you begin to understand that you are not God, you begin to breathe. And the person who has done you wrong and you think they haven't yet gotten their just desserts, all of a sudden, you can say, I know that the Lord has this. Whatever the Lord wants, that is fine. And it may not be easy, but it allows you to give that to the Lord. And here's what I want to say here in August 2019, because many of you are going to forget this in November of 2020. So I want you to hear me. No matter who wins the election, I want you to know this. God is still on the throne. It may not be who you want. It may not be who you think God wanted, but I'm here to tell you this. And so let me just give you a little trigger. If you begin to see or sense massive fear and anxiety and anger and hatred at those who have won or those who are, who are going for it, let me just tell you, that means that you have forgotten that you are not God. Yes, we should vote. Yes, it's fine to support someone, but always know this. God is in control. 
The greatest witness we can be to this world is not to have the person we want to win any election to win. The greatest witness that we can be, I know I'm about 15 months beforehand, but the greatest witness that we can be is to be a people who lead with mercy and grace and reflect the love of Jesus Christ. But it starts working on that today. May we be cultivated in such a way, sisters and brothers in Christ, that we understand our own weaknesses and the mercy of God, that we see other people first and foremost not as opponents, but as creations of God, and that we remember that God is God, that we are not. The book ends with a question that Jonah does not answer, which means we get to answer that question. And we answer it, it seems to me, not by the words that we say, but by the ways in which we love, not those who are easily loved, but those who are our enemies. May we be that church, and may we give witness to the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.